Well, good morning again to all of you and welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. It's a joy to spend another Sunday together with the family of God. And I hope that you'll all get a chance to rest and enjoy God's creation during this long weekend. Uh, This morning, we are continuing our series in the one another's. And we are actually going to find that uh, we don't just have one one another in our text this morning, but we will have three. But don't worry, I'm not going to keep you here three hours. We will be uh, on time, but uh, please turn with, with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and Peter writes this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your spirit for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be, ex- be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray one more time. Our Father, we're grateful again for your word. We pray that as we study these one another's, as we reflect on living life in light of the end, that you would help us love you more, that you would help us to see how worthy you are of worship, and that we would indeed orient the entirety of our lives to live for you and for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. A big feature of worship in the Christian church is communion. And here at SFBC, we take communion at the beginning of every month. And as we do so, we are reminding one another, or we are proclaiming to our brothers and sisters in our congregation, the fact that Christ died, that he rose again, and that he is coming again, right? that he will return to bring us home, home to heaven, home to be with our Lord forever. And yet, despite the great hope of heaven that we have before us, have you ever considered how Christians are to live in light of the end drawing near? From a young age, we educate our Christian, our, our, sorry, our children, we educate our children so that they can eventually grow up and have the skills that are necessary to survive in this world. But to what end? Even when we're adults, we have our jobs and we go to our work and we clock in and we clock out. But to what end? To what end? Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we should not educate our children, nor am I saying that we should not go to work. But as we go through these mundane aspects of life, Do we have the right perspective? Do we understand what we're living for? And what are we living for anyways? Are we living for vacation? Are we living for experiences? What are we living for in this life? The Sunday school answer, of course, would be, well, for God's glory. And you would be right. We are living for God's glory. That certainly is true. But have we, as a church and as individuals, considered what that would practically look like? What does it mean to live life for God's glory here on this earth? Well, this morning, we're going to consider three one another's, three one another's that emphasize how Christians are to live in light of the end, or three one another is that emphasize how Christians are to live as the end draws near. It's coming. Right? And so those one another's are that we are to love one another fervently. We are to practice generous hospitality to one another. And we are to serve one another for God's glory. So the first one another that emphasizes how Christians are to live as the end draws near is that we are to love one another fervently. We are to love one another fervently. The letter of 1 Peter was written to believers who had been persecuted for their faith. 
Right? As a result of their persecution, they were scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey. They've been suffering a lot. Not only did they have to leave their homes, but they lost any kind of friends and family that they had that did not accept them as Christians. And they had suffered a lot. And as they suffer, Peter writes to them to encourage them and to provide them comfort as they continue to endure the various trials that are associated with becoming a Christian, right? such as being kicked out of their communities and um, losing their homes, everything that they've ever worked for, gone. Now, what they experienced was certainly unjust. It was certainly wrong. And as they are enduring this injustice, Peter continues to remind them that the way that they respond to these trials ought to be one that honors the Lord. Because the time for us to respond as fleshly people, the the time for us to respond in our sins, it's gone. We are to live for God and for his glory. And in light of those truths, verse 7 tells us this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. When Peter mentions that the end of all things is at hand, he's not saying that the end of time has come. Right? He's not saying that it's all, that, uh, it's all over. And that's pretty evident because we're still sitting here 2,000 years later worshiping Jesus Christ. Rather, what Peter is saying is that the return of Christ, it's coming soon. Or the $10 word that we would use is that his return is imminent. We are not told what time Christ's return will happen exactly, but we know that it's the next major event on the schedule. So when we say it's imminent, that's the idea. It's the next major event. Um, stop on the map, on, on the schedule. It's like when you're driving home from Southern California and you're on the five and you see a sign that says stop 41 is in 15 miles. And then San Francisco is here in 200 and something miles. And you're just kind of like, wait a second. I know there are a bunch of cities in between stop 41 and San Francisco. Why is San Francisco like the next thing on the map? Who says it's the next big city? Right, so it's letting you know how, how soon the next big landmark is. Right? And so, in a sense, right, in a similar way, Peter is reminding his readers, the coming of Christ is soon. It could happen at any point, on any day. And with that knowledge in mind, right, it can be tempting to respond with an attitude of complacency. Right? Knowing that Christ is coming back, like, why would we, why would we choose to work? It's almost kind of like, why bother try? He's coming. Why keep working? He's coming. Why evangelize? Whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved. Why go to church? I want to spend eternity with these guys anyway, so it doesn't really matter, right? But that's not the mindset of a believer who knows that the end is drawing near. Rather, what we see in the second half of verse 7 is that we have a call to action. Right? Knowing what will happen in the end should cause us to work hard to please our Lord. It should cause us to pray. God didn't reveal the end so that we can just hang out and just wait until he comes back. He revealed the end to provide comfort for those who are suffering and to provide a call to action for the rest. Right? Those words that we see, sound thinking. And sober spirit, there are essentially two sets of words describing the same thing. Peter calls believers to have self-control in their thinking as they live in light of Christ's imminent return. So they're the same two sets. Those two two sets of words are the same idea. that We are to have self-control in our thinking as we live in light of Christ's imminent return. Rather than spiraling or doing nothing, we are to be driven to prayer. We pray knowing that God still has his plans and his purposes here on earth. We pray knowing that there are still people out there that God has determined will enter into his kingdom. And so it is our task. It is our job. It is our purpose 
as believers here on earth to go and to minister to them, to go and share the gospel with them so that they might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no idea who they are, which is why we go, which is why we share the gospel. Therefore, though the end is near, we pray that God's will be done in our lives. But that's not all. Verse eight, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, we are to pray that God's will be done in our lives, right? We are to pray that many people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that's not our only responsibility as believers, right? It's not just everything is outward, everything is outside the church. We still have a responsibility to each other as the family of God as well. In fact, this responsibility to one another as the family of God is so important that Peter says, above all, we are to keep fervent in our love for one another, right? So yes, evangelism is important. It is critical, but a critical part of that witness to the world is the way that we love one another as the church body or as the church family. After all, Jesus himself says in John 13, 35, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The idea of keep fervent in your love is to have an earnest love for one another, right? An earnest love for one another. That means that it's a love that is genuine. It's a love that is persistent for each other. You know, when we live together in community, it's going to be easy for us to love one another only when it's convenient. It's going to be easy for us to love one another only when we feel like it, or perhaps only when we are on good terms with other people, or only if we do not have bitter feelings towards certain people. And even if that feeling of Resentment, bitterness is there legitimately. There are no exceptions to this command. We are to keep fervent in our love for one another. And that's a difficult thing to hear, especially when we're like, but you don't know what this person has done. You don't know what they've said. And yet Peter still says, despite that, we are to keep fervent in our love towards one another. Remember the context that Peter is right that Peter is writing in. He's writing to people who've been scattered from their church. They no longer have the the benefit of being together with everyone that they're used to being with. Right? So now is not the time for pettiness to enter into the church. Now is not the time for dissension to come in and rip up the fellowship that the body of Christ has. And so he says, we are to keep fervent in our love for one another. But, you know, we also see that as the, as the end draws near, there is a lot of wickedness, right? And there can be some selfishness that, selfishness that comes in as well. Jesus himself, he knew that it would be hard for us to keep up this genuine, persistent love because he says in Matthew 24, 12, and because lawlessness is, is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. Brothers and sisters, all you have to do is go to our local news website or news station, and you will know and notice that lawlessness is increasing. Yes, you can feel it. You can see it with your own eyes. And so the temptation could be, you know what, I'm done with this world. I don't really want to be a part of this world anymore. I'm just going to keep to myself. I don't mind my own business. And I, I ain't going to interact with everybody else. Right? Just, just me, my family, as long as we're good, doesn't really matter. And Jesus acknowledges that. He says, because of lawlessness, right, it will be easy for a lot of people to lose sight of the end, to lose sight of why we gather, to lose sight of why we worship. But what is the big picture? Or why are we here? The big picture, brothers and sisters, is the glory of God. We are here to glorify God. And so, as lawlessness increases, 
We don't retreat. We don't insulate ourselves. Rather, we make it our purpose to glorify God by doing his business in this world, by reaching the lost and getting together to minister to one another and to minister to the community around us. And so that's why this command to keep fervent in our love remains. It is so tempting to isolate. It is tempting to look after our own interests. After all, if I don't look after my own interests, who will? It is tempting to ignore or treat coldly those with whom we disagree with or those that we have tension with in this life. But this life that we live, right, is supposed to be lived for the glory of our God. And so this call to love one another genuinely and persistently in this life is a reminder that the love, mercy, and compassion that we've been showed by God in Christ is the exact same love that we are to show towards others. Lest we become like that unmerciful servant in Jesus's parable. Do you guys remember him? He owed his master much. Years and years and years and years worth of salary. Such that he would never be able to pay it off in his own lifetime. And his master forgave him of all that debt. What did the unmerciful servant do? He went to his fellow servants. He found someone who owed him a few dollars. Essentially, he said, pay up. The guy couldn't. And he said, you're going to prison until you can pay it off. Are we in danger of becoming like the unmerciful servant in the way that we treat one another? We've been forgiven much, but we are unwilling to forgive much. After all, have you ever thought about the fact, or or have you ever thought about the purpose for this command, love one another fervently? Or keep your love fervent. What's the purpose of this command? Peter helps us see that the purpose of this command is because love covers a multitude of sins. So for the second week in a row, we encounter these words and we're reminded that genuine Christian love, that the genuine Christian love that we ought to have for each other helps us overlook sins. It helps us overlook sins. Now, this doesn't mean that the sins committed against us don't matter. This doesn't mean that sin doesn't need to be confessed to each other when we do sin against each other. However, however, it is a reminder that we have been forgiven of much, and so we can forgive much. Now, unless we absolutely cannot overlook a sin committed against us, we should be willing to continue to love one another, to continue to overlook the sin committed against us. Now, of course, there are going to be times where we will struggle with overlooking. And perhaps, perhaps that would be a good time for us to look first to ourselves and to ask ourselves the question, the question, why? Am I struggling to overlook this sin? Why am I struggling to overlook this sin that has been committed against me? And the reason why we start first with ourselves is because perhaps we ourselves are responding sinfully to being sinned against. Perhaps we are responding sinfully to being sinned against. I don't know about you, but there are times when I am about to get into conflict. And in the back of my mind, I know the way out. I know how not to escalate the conflict. And yet, in the back of my mind, though I know how to get out, though I know that if I say certain words, I will make this worse. There are times where I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to do it anyway. Or maybe this is just me, right? But I'm sure it's you guys too, right? Because we all do this, right? We all know that if we say a few words, right? If we respond in a certain way, it's on. It's going to happen, right? The fireworks are going to start. We know that. We can say things that will escalate, but we don't have to, right? We know we don't have to. 
And yet sometimes because of our own pride, because of our own anger, it's like, you know what? I don't give you a piece of my mind. And you ain't getting away with that. I'm coming after you. We don't need to do that. We do do that. Right? And so that's why we want to examine ourselves first. Or we examine ourselves first because that sinful part in us, right? It, it wants to win. Right, the, the remaining sin in us, it wants to win. It wants to express our desire. It wants to please self rather than God. And so we need, to, we need to challenge ourselves first. Why am I not willing to overlook this sin? Right, why am I not willing to let it go? Is it because I want my way? Or is it because I actually have a genuine concern for this person? And I want to steer them away from sin and back towards God. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between wanting to pursue my own sin and to pursue my own desires and wanting to, in love, turn my brother or sister back towards Christ. Right? And if that's the genuine concern that drives us, then we are to, in love, confront them with the principles that are found in Matthew 18. Now, when you think of it that way, right, that is a big reminder that love can overlook a lot, can it not? Right? Love can overlook a lot. Not every sin, now I'm talking about sin, okay? Not violation of preferences. Not every sin committed against us is serious enough where we have to stop the car, pull it over, and correct it, right? Not every sin requires that. If that was the case, when you're driving, you probably have to pull over a lot. That's not the case, right? Not every sin is serious enough where we have to stop and correct it right there, right then, right? There's room for grace, there's room for growth. We all struggle, yes? And so there is room for us to allow someone to respond crankily to us and not be like, hey, you stop that right now. Don't you dare speak to me with that tone, right? We don't have to do that all the time, right? We can brush it off. We can allow for, the, we can allow for this instance of, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe they're not having a good day right now, and I'll pray for them, rather than just getting right in their face and correcting right away. Right? It's not necessary every single time. There's room for grace. There's room for growth. But of course, right, there will be times when correction is appropriate, when it is necessary. And if we were to be silent, we would not be loving our brother or our sister. Right? So there's some wisdom that needs to, that, that needs to take, uh, take place. There's some discernment that needs to happen. Right? But our goal even in confronting, our goal, even in confronting, is to help turn a sinning brother or sister back to the Lord so that we are no longer in a place where sin's presence and effects are actively, negatively affecting fellowship among the body of Christ. As Christians, we are to be known by our love, not because we are anything special, but because the love that we show one another should look exactly the same. Exactly the same. Not just partially the same. Exactly the same as the love that Christ has shown us. And that brings us to the second one another that emphasizes how Christians are to live as the end draws near. And that is that we are to practice generous hospitality to one another. We're to practice generous hospitality to one another. First Peter 4, 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Love functions as the fuel for how the body of Christ ought to inter interact with one another as the end draws near. And Peter now explains that God-honoring Christian conduct ought to be marked by hospitality. Now that word hospitality can literally be understood as love for strangers, right? It can literally be understood as love for strangers, but it can also include having a love for others in general. So it's a compound word in the original language that literally means love for strangers, but we can apply it to others as well. In the early church, hospitality was often practiced towards fellow believers who were on journeys. They were, um, they were missionaries. They were itinerant preachers. Uh, or sometimes they were just on their way to another city to conduct some business. But 
but this hospitality, it, it, was, it was mainly shown by being a, um, being a place for fellow Christians to stay uh, safely, right? To lodge safely on, on their travels. Hospitality is such an important evidence of a Christian's love for others that Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.2 that those who aspire to the office of elder ought to display hospitality among other godly traits to demonstrate that they are indeed loving people, right? That they are indeed godly people. Paul repeats the importance of hospitality in those who will be recognized as elders in Titus 1.8. When again, as he's listing the qualifications, the character qualities that we ought to see in an elder, he mentions hospitality again, right? That hospitality should be on display, right? So it's so important in the Christian community that we have hospitality, that our elders ought to be marked by it, right? They ought to practice it. They ought to be seen as those who are hospitable. But just in case some of you think, Ooh, I'm not an elder. I don't got to practice hospitality. We're not off the hook just yet, right? Because um, hospitality is not limited to the elders of the church, right? It's not a spiritual gift where if you don't have it, well, I don't have to, I don't have to practice it. It is part of body life because what we see in first Peter four nine is that we are to be hospitable to one another. Right? It's in this, in this exhortation to be hospitable to one another, it's addressed to everyone that Peter's writing to, right? Peter's not just writing to church leaders. He's writing to all of the believers who are scattered all over Asia Minor, right? And he's saying that all of them are to practice hospitality towards one another, right? This is not addressed again to the leadership of the church, but to the whole church, all the believers who are scattered in Romans 12, 13, we see hospitality again mentioned as an outworking of love that is meant to be on display in the life of every single believer. And so you see, all of us are called to be hospitable people because it's part of how love displays itself in the body of Christ. It's not something that's exclusive to one group of people. It's to be practiced among all genuine believers in Jesus Christ. So what kind of hospitality are we to show to other people? The context in 1 Peter 4, 9 doesn't specify how we are to be hospitable. However, you know, back in the day, hospitality would have been thought of as housing guests or even hosting the gathering of the church, right? They didn't all have church buildings where they could meet. So people would open up their homes and invite for the church to come meet in their homes. I mean, how would you like it if your home was inundated with how many people are here in the service right now? It's like, oh, there's no breathing room over here, right? But that's what they did, right? They probably had smaller gatherings, but that's what they did. They opened up their homes to host the church. Now, since the command to show hospitality towards each other is given to the church in general, we're recognizing that it's probably not just, that the, the hospitality that's being commanded is not just housing strangers every now and then, and, um, and the hosting church, right? Because only a few people probably could do that. So this suggests that there's something more frequent, right? This is a practice that's more frequent than, the, uh, than just housing so that all the members of the church can practice that. So what does that look like today? What could that look like today? Of course, it could look like that old-fashioned, you invite people over to your home for a meal. It could look like that, but you don't have to prepare a meal, right? If money's tight, Come over to my house. Let's have a potluck. Let's enjoy fellowship together. Let's enjoy food together. Right? It could be that. Hospitality could also be taking someone out to coffee or tea or boba. Hospitality could be caring for practical needs, like driving someone to doctor's appointments. Or if you know someone is cooped up at home, and they don't have a chance to get out often. Right? Hospitality could be you go over and you offer to drive them someplace and you go walk with them, you spend time with them so they're not stuck at home all the time. It could be taking the bill when you and your friend go out to eat and not that fake taking the bill where you're like, oh, you're going to take it? Oh, thank you. Right? But actually striving to take the bill. Right? There are no specific guidelines given, which means that there is freedom and flexibility in how we express hospitality. Right? Hospitality can take many forms, not just having people over at your home to stay the night for a few nights or feeding them for, for dinner or whatever. 
right? There, and the fact that there are so many different expressions of hospitality encourages creativity and imagination in how we show love and care for one another. It encourages creativity and imagination in how we show love and care for one another. Now, the fact that it's so that hospitality can be expressed in so many different ways is a reminder that the most important thing about hospitality is not just that you do it, right? Or that you one up each other so that you can prove, oh, I love you this much, or I love you this many dollars worth, right? But the practice of the most important uh, part of the practice of hospitality is that we are making sure that we are genuinely loving one another. And that's the most important thing is that we are seeking to show each other that we love one another. And if that is the case, if it is that simple, then we should all consider how we might show hospitality towards one another. Now, can hospitality be taken advantage of? Can it be abused? Absolutely, yes. Right, Solomon says in Proverbs 25, 17, let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house, lest he have more than his fill of you and hate you. All right, Solomon is pretty funny. He recognizes, right, that you can have people who are just hanging out too long, right? It's like 1030 at night and you're like, dude, I got to go to work tomorrow. You got to go, right? Uh, he recognizes that that can be a problem or it's just like, they're constantly over at your place. And I didn't realize I was going to house you too, but okay. Right. He recognizes that there are cases, there are instances in which people can overstay their welcome. People can abuse the hospitality being shown to them. And we know that that's true for us too, right? There can be sometimes such a great enjoyment of good, of, of, of a good thing that we're just like, Oh yeah. Like I expect it now. Right? Instead of something that you graciously accept, you're expecting it. That can be a problem, right? That can be a problem. And so, for those of us who have been shown hospitality, right, we want to be mindful of when we graciously accept that hospitality, and we want to be careful of being takers. Right? Those who routinely take love, routinely take kindness, but we don't show love and kindness back. If we're constantly taking, but rarely or never show sincere gratitude or care to the ones that are being gracious to us, right? We can actually lead those people who are gracious and hospitable to grumble, to complain, or to even resent us, right? We can lead them into sin. That's why in 1 Peter 4 9, right, we see that the command not only, well, the command is mostly for those who show hospitality, but we also want to be mindful of taking advantage of that, right? It's to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. The potential for grumbling is real, right? Especially for those who always find themselves serving others. And as a result, they need to be watchful of their own hearts to make sure that they remember why they're serving, right? You're not just serving so that you can feel good about yourself, right? You're being hospitable because you love them and because Ultimately, again, right, in light of the coming of Christ, we live for the glory of God. And so even though people come over and use your dishes and don't pick up after themselves, right, they make you pick up after them. And for those of you who are hospitable, you have to watch your own heart and seek to love on them too, right, and to care for them. But for those of you who are being served, make sure that you care for them too. Right? You, you care for your hosts too, that you watch out for their hearts and you make it a joy for them to serve you, that you make it a joy for them to be hospitable to you and that you're not taking advantage of them. You're not leading them to temptation, to grumble and sin. And that brings us to the third one another that emphasizes how Christians are to live as the end draws near. And that is we are to serve one another for God's glory. We are to serve one another for God's glory. Verses 10 through 11. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. 
So he gives to the church, right? He puts them in two categories, gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. So he's not trying to create a list of all the detailed gifts that God gives to the church, but he's just broadly summarizing them into two categories, right? Gifts of serving, of speaking, and gifts of serving. And you'll notice that Peter recognizes that each person has received some form of gift from God, right? some form. You look at verse 10, and it says here that as each one has received a gift, we are to employ it in serving others as good stewards. Right? So God gives each church member a particular gift, a particular function, a particular skill set to use as a grace gift to the rest of the church. So these various gifts that God gives, right, they are reflections of all the different ways that God displays his grace towards us. And so when we're thinking about being good stewards of these graces, we remember that it's not for ourselves, it's for the rest of the church, right? Because the whole church is to experience the manifold, the, the, the huge variety of God's grace. And so because we want to be good stewards of this grace, we want to show it to others within the church. We should not think about our gifts merely in relationship to ourselves. And we should not think about our spiritual gifts merely in relationship to ourselves. And that is the temptation of our individualistic American Christianity, is it not? To think about our gifts. What are my gifts? How can I express my gifts? How can I use my gifts to serve the church? But is it really about the church or is it about us? You see, these gifts that God gives are not primarily about us and how we might find a sense of identity, joy, and purpose in which gifts we possess and how we use the gifts that we have. Rather, what we recognize in these two verses is that the primary reason, the primary reason God gives us spiritual gifts is to serve other people within the church. There is a built-in mutual benefit for everyone who gathers in the church and serves one another. And for this reason, verse 11, we see an emphasis on the fact that no matter what the gifts are, they are to be exercised with God at the center. Right? So whether you have a speaking gift or a serving gift, or a combination of the two, no matter what you do, it is to all be done for the glory of God. It's to be done with God at the center. For those who have been given gifts of speaking, such as the gifts of encouragement, exhortation, or teaching, these gifts are not for us to use for ourselves. Rather, there is a seriousness and a care with which we take the task of speaking because we want to make sure the words we speak line up with God's words as revealed in Scripture. And when we're trying to encourage someone, when we're trying to exhort someone, when we're trying to teach someone, we have to be careful with the words that we use. It says here that we are to speak as one speaking the oracles of God. That doesn't mean that you take upon yourself authority that belongs to God as if you are a modern day prophet and thus saith the Lord, thou must pick up thou socks and put them in the hamper. Right? That is not what it means to speak as one, uh, as one uh, who has the oracles of God. Rather, what it means is that we are to speak the words of God, to be careful to speak the words of God. One commentator put it this way, using speaking gifts to minister to others means that the one speaking endeavors to speak God's words. How easy it is to think that we can assist others with our wisdom, but those who are entrusted with the ministry of speaking should be careful to speak God's words, to be faithful to the gospel. In using any kind of speaking gift we have, we need to make sure we need to make it very clear which words are God's words and which words are our words. Because our aim, right, our aim in utilizing our speaking gifts is not to glorify ourselves. 
Right? Our aim in utilizing speaking gifts is to bring glory to God. We don't want other people, when they're hearing our words, to think, wow, I like this teacher guy. I like this preacher. What a great person. Right? What a great servant of God. What a godly man. We don't want to draw attention to the teacher, to the man. Rather, as we utilize these speaking gifts, what we want to do is we want to cause other people, as they hear our words, to think, wow, what a great God we have. Because of this person's teaching, I love Jesus more. Because of this person's teaching, I can see the power of God. I can appreciate all the things that he has done for me. I can treasure God all the better because this servant of God has helpfully ex- explained the text to me. Right? That's all that it really should be. Is that the teacher ought to get out of the way so that God can be glorified, so that God can be central. As God's people, we are in the business of glorifying God, not taking the glory for ourselves. And in a similar way, if we are gifted with gifts of service, we are to serve with the strength that God supplies. And that reminds us of the danger with service gifts. Because the danger with service gifts is serving for the sake of serving. Serving through our own strength which can be really easy for the doers among us, can it not? Because this is like, well, I'm awake. I got nothing on the calendar. I got some energy. I got some time. I can do it. I will do it. It can be really easy to fall into that pattern or to get into into that mindset. We can just have that attitude of, it's my turn to serve. So let me just drink a bunch of caffeine, drink a bunch of tea, and let's go. And that's, that's a really easy mindset to have. Right? And this is the attitude that we can easily adopt, especially with events like day camp, right? with church family picnic, with CBM camp, and other service-oriented events. Right? It's just go do. You're awake. You got energy. Go. Serve. Be used by God. But what we have to remember is that it's not just about you and your abilities. Right, that even in our strength, even in our energy, even in our time, even in our money, our service is empowered by God. It's not just about you. It's what you're able to do by God's grace. It's not about you. Now, why do we have to remember this? Because we can be really tempted to serve out of love for how acts of service make us feel. Ooh, does that hurt? Should, right? It can be really easy to serve simply because we like how serving makes us feel. We like it when someone comes up to us and says, thank you so much. I really appreciated your teaching today. I really appreciated you putting this service on for our kids. It can be so, so easy to take the compliments and run with it and say, oh, This is great. I feel great. I need to get this feeling more. I need to serve more so that people can be thankful for me so that I can feel appreciated in the life of this church. What are we doing? We're serving because we want to worship self rather than serving because we love God and we love his people. As the return of Christ draws near, we have to endeavor to remember the big picture perspective that God wants us to have. This life that we live is not about us, right? This life that we live, it's not about us. It is about glorifying God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We do this as a church, again, also known as the body of Christ, when we love one another when we care for one another, and when we serve one another. And so when we serve, we do not make it about us and how much we've sacrificed, how much energy we put into it, how much planning we put into it, how much time we put in it, 
or whatnot, but we remind ourselves that even in these acts of service, we did it through God's strength, not for our glory, but for his glory. Because the moment that we take the focus off God and put it upon ourselves, we lose sight of why we love, care, and serve one another. As we eagerly await the coming of our Lord, we constantly need to remember that our impending homecoming is not just about the benefit that we will receive. Now, we will receive a benefit, but it's not just about that. Our impending homecoming is about the glory of God. When Christ returns, we will be delighted, not only because we will be with the Lord, but we will also be delighted because our God, who is worthy of all glory, honor, and majesty, will receive all the worship that he is owed. That's why we serve. Because we want other people to see how glorious God is. We want other people to see what a great treasure that he is. That's why we don't take the glory for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, when you serve, what are you motivated by? Are you motivated by a desire to please self? A desire to elevate self? Are you motivated by the glory of God because you love him? And when you think about the glory of God, when you think about the end of time, do you get excited about the fact that one day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ Jesus as Lord? Does that excite you? Does that motivate you? Does that make you want to love Jesus more and to give of yourself, not for yourself, but so that we can all contribute to that final day when all worship Christ because they see him and his beauty and they say all glory and honor and majesty belong to our king. Right? That should be what motivates us. That should be what drives us. That should be what makes us sing Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory for, and dominion forever and ever. Right? That is the big picture. To live for the glory of God. To live for his honor and for his pleasure. And so for this reason, as the end draws near, we do not turn inwards to please ourselves and make ourselves the most comfortable, or to pursue all that this life has to offer. Because we're afraid that we're going to miss out. Rather, we ought to continue to draw near to one another, and to serve our Lord, knowing that His purpose for our gathering together, His purpose for us living life together, is to bring Him great glory as we remind each other and the rest of the world of the wonderful power of the gospel to save us from our sins and to change our lives. And so Christians, let us this morning consider how we might make sure that above all, we love each other fervently. And as we do so, what are some selfish attitudes that we must repent of? What are loving thoughts and deeds we can begin to do, right, to put on towards other people according to the ability that we have? What are some of those thoughts and deeds that we can begin to do? How can we strive to be hospitable towards one another? How can we, if we are on the receiving end of hospitality, make it a joy to, uh, for others to serve us with hospitality? How can we... Serve one another with the glory of God in mind. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're really glad that you're here. We're really glad that you can hear about the end. Now, I understand that this topic of living in light of the end might seem a little bit morbid, might seem like nonsense to you. But God's aim in revealing the end to people through the Bible is to help us see that there is a necessary response to his plans. For Christians, it is to respond with love and worship. 
For those of you who are unbelievers who are here, you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've not asked him for the forgiveness of sins. Your response is to consider whether you will believe. To consider how you ought to respond, knowing that the end is coming. Now, we can all acknowledge that we are human. We can all acknowledge that none of us are perfect. That we all make mistakes, and that's a part of the human experience. That is all true. But it doesn't mean that we're innocent of wrongdoing, especially when we hurt other people, whether it's inadvertent or or intentional. Romans 2, 14 to 15 explains that when we naturally do the things that are right and in line with God's moral law, we actually prove that God's moral law is real and it's good. So it doesn't matter whether you actually believe that he exists or not. You're doing what is right according to God's word actually proves that his word is real. And so when we go against God's standards, when we fail to do what is right, when we feel guilt, that is our internal warning beacon telling us that we've messed up, that we have sinned, and that there is nothing that can deliver us from the justice that we deserve for our failure except faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the just penalty of death that all who deserve, that all of us deserve upon himself so that he can save us and transfer his perfect righteousness over to us when we believe. So, Will you believe in him today? Will you confess your sin to him? Will you acknowledge that you've sinned against him and place your faith in him today so that you can enjoy the blessing of no longer being in trouble with God this very day? If you have any questions about that, you can feel free to come up to me after the service or you can ask whoever brought you. Um, And there are other people around who will be more than happy to discuss faith with you. Before I invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a closing song, I'd just like to provide some application questions for us to consider. What are some challenges to living life with Christ's return in view? What are some challenges to living life with Christ's return in view? So, you know, it's easy to say, well, we ought to live in light of eternity. Right? But what are some challenges that take us off that, right? That kind of obscure our vision from living with Christ's return in view. So what are some of those challenges? Number two, how can we show hospitality to one another given the resources that God has given us, right? So we recognize that we all have limited time and resources, but how can you show hospitality to other people, right? Within your ability, how can you do that? Number three, how, what, how might we keep God's glory in mind as we are serving others? These are just some application questions for us to consider. You can also, of course, come up with your own but uh, just some things that I thought would be helpful for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the salvation that he has provided for us upon the cross. And we're grateful that, Lord, because of his resurrection, we know for certain that forgiveness of sins is possible, that growth and change is possible. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to strive to please you and honor you in all aspects of our life. We pray that you would help us to keep fervent in our love for one another. We pray that you would help us to, because of our overflow of love for one another, desire to to be hospitable to one another and to serve one another. We pray all of this for your glory and for your honor. In your son, Jesus Christ's name, amen.